Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning. I don't think I have the chipmunk filter on my voice, so I don't know what happened this morning, but that is okay. Our hope is not in technology. Our our AV team is crushing it back there, and sometimes the demons get in the electronics. So, um, good morning. I am so glad that all of you are here this morning. Um, Just uh, just a couple of things before we get started. Uh, Again, if you would like to fill out a Connect card, uh, the the, uh, QR code is going to be on the screen. Uh, For doing so, we will give you two gifts. If this is your first time with us, we'll give you a $5 gift certificate to um, Braska Coffee Shop, which is just around the corner, as well as a free book on prayer. And so we would love to get to know you a little better. Here at City on the Hill, we have three values, the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus loves us, that he gave his life for us on the cross, that we could be his, that no matter what we've done, no matter what's been, what, what our past is like, the blood of Jesus covers that. And that because of that, he calls us into a new community. The church is primarily a community of people. And so we live out the hope of Jesus together and we do so through community groups. Community groups are groups that meet together right now, some of them virtually, some of them in backyards in person. Um, to, to share God, share time together, study God's word and love their neighbors. And then lastly, um, we don't have all the information on this yet, uh, but Halloween is probably actually my favorite holiday of the year. Um, I, not because I dress up like a clown or anything, um, but just because I enjoy Halloween. In fact, I think Halloween might be the most Christian holiday of the entire year. And here's why I think that, because it is the one holiday where you can meet all of your neighbors because everybody's outside and everybody's in a good mood. Well, this year it's a little different. Um, The CDC is saying that Halloween and trick-or-treating, we probably shouldn't do that. So we want to invite our neighbors to us. So what we're gonna do here at the church building is we're gonna do a gigantic candy giveaway. I don't have all the details on this yet, but we're gonna have a kind of a costume parade and and invite our friends and neighbors to wear their costumes. And we're gonna give them an entire night's worth of candy in one bag. So if if you're 38 years old and you wanna dress up, come on, we'll give you candy. There will be some opportunities for you guys to be involved in that, to be a part of that as well. Well, you've picked a good week to check out City on a Hill. If this is your first time with us, we are going to be talking about some some sensitive topics. So parents, if you do have those headphones and you want to, we provided some tablets, uh, you're welcome to do so. Parents at home, if if you want to have your kids uh, look at something else, I totally understand because this morning we're going to talk about sex adultery, divorce, and remarriage. What an uplifting day to come to church, right? Um, And so I want to make a couple of disclaimers before we get started. This is a difficult subject. Um, This is a subject that brings up pain for a lot of us. It's affected many of us, these these subjects that we're going to be looking at this morning. I want you to know that there's incredible grace in Jesus. Jesus forgives every single sin. There is not anything that Jesus cannot cover and nothing. And this is not the scarlet letter. Um, And so there's incredible grace for us here, but also we're a church that we don't skip over stuff. Like the Bible says some hard things and we don't skip over it because we believe that all of God's word is good. All of God's word is for our flourishing. And then lastly, I can't answer every question in this one sermon. I have about 27 to 30 minutes uh, to walk through this sermon. Um, I might go a little over, sorry. Um, And so what we're going to do is this week, our community groups are not going to meet. 
Um, we are going to gather and do a Q&A on Wednesday night uh, via Zoom, and you can text your questions to 617-286-2006. So if this sermon brings up a question, or if there's something you've always been wondering about about this subject, we're going to do a webinar and try to unpack some of those questions together. So today we are going to talk about sex. Woody Allen said, he said, talking about sex, the, 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 uh, the director, who I would never take advice on sex or relationships from, um, he said, I don't know the question, but sex is definitely the answer. We are a culture that believes that sex is the answer. And so when culture looks at the church, when culture looks at the Bible and the answers that we give when it comes to sex, relationship, and marriage, they tend to think we're, are, we're repressive that we have a very low view of sex, that we are like the Puritans who there was this myth that the Puritans believed that you should just be buttoned up and, and be very prudish. And in fact, there's an, a great article that disproves that, that the, the Puritans actually believed in a very beautiful and robust sex life as married people. Go look that up on your own. Um, but th we actually believe that as Christians that the world's vision for sex is the one that's too low. That Christianity actually provides a beautiful ethic for sex and sexuality. And so there are three attitudes that our culture takes towards sex uh, that we find are pr actually pretty, pretty, a pretty low view of them. The first is that it's just a natural appetite. It's just, it's just a natural appetite. It's like getting hungry. We need it. Um, and so it's just basic to being human. So we, we overvalue its power on us. Secondly, it's the, it's the opposite. It's that sex is this necessary evil. It's something that's degrading. It's something that's considered dirty. It's only for, for having children. And so it's undervalued. It's almost like something to be feared. Or lastly, that it's about self-expression, that this is who I am. I am my desires. My desires make me who I am. So in other words, to be fully human, I have to fulfill my inner desires. And so this is the, the idea of self-actualization. I have to become myself through fulfilling my sexual desires. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that those visions for sex and sexuality don't work. Jesus gives a different vision. A beautiful vision. Again, this entire series has been about how do we flourish? How do we flourish? How do we live the good life? And in doing this, Jesus doesn't hide from the issue of sex. He doesn't hide from the issue of sexuality because the Bible doesn't hide from it. And so in verse 27, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is in the middle of a section about the greater righteousness that Jesus requires for his kingdom, this, this heart righteousness, this, this more than just an external beha behavioral change, is more than just doing the right things, but a heart that longs for God. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, in this section, there's this pattern. There's this pattern that says, you've heard it said. So here's a well-known commandment. And then secondly, here's the, the real intent that's behind it and then how Jesus wants us to work this out. So, so last week, this was a lot easier to see. The idea of anger, the idea of murder, like those are pretty easy to see. We can say, you know what? Those are wrong. You shouldn't, you shouldn't murder anyone. Can we all agree on that? We should, we should. Okay, we're good. Don't, at home, we can, okay, don't murder people. Okay, this week it's a little harder. It's a little more difficult because we need to lay some groundwork. It says here, you have heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, that you, sh that you shouldn't commit sexual immorality, but I think as a, we've kind of been desensitized to that. And so we are feeling the effects of the sexual revolution. 
We were three or four generations into the sexual revolution that our grandparents and our parents were told that you can enjoy sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to. There's no strings attached. The idea of monogamy or marriage are outdated, that you can give your body but not your heart. But the sexual revolution doesn't deliver. Or as James K.A. Smith says, promiscuity didn't keep its promises. Studies have shown that the attitudes towards sex and sexuality have led to bitterness. There's a deeper sense of hurt. There's a deeper sense of brokenness in families. That obsession with sex has led to ruined careers. It's led to abuse. You see the Me Too movement, which is the receipt coming due on the sexual revolution. And the reason that the world's vision for sex fails is sex is loaded with questions. It's loaded with the question, am I loved? Am I good enough? Am I safe? Is it okay for me to be completely vulnerable in front of this person? And the world's vision fails. So behind the commandment, don't commit adultery, is this vision that Jesus has that there is a better way. And so I want to lay a foundation of the beauty and the goodness of sex, and then we're going to get to what's being said here how God designed it to be enjoyed. Firstly, we see that sex is good and beautiful. Sex is a good thing. The Bible has a very healthy and robust vision for sex. And in fact, if you read the Bible long enough, it will make you blush. Um, Go look at Proverbs. Go look at Song of Solomon. It's not playing around. These are not metaphors. These are people in, in a marital covenant enjoying one another sexually. In fact, it is very explicit in how good the, the loving relationship between a husband and a father. In fact, if you look at the Proverbs, it gives very descriptive language about enjoying the body of your spouse. Song of Solomon in particular is a book that has, a lot of scholars have tried to spiritualize it. They're like, you know what? This is about Jesus' love for the church. No, this is about a man and a woman enjoying a sexual relationship. In fact, children were not allowed to read the book of Song of Solomon because they were afraid it would inflame the passions within their hearts. And so if you look at Song of Solomon chapter 8, you see the beauty of this relationship. In chapter 8, verse 1, you see an incredible intimacy. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. I found you outside. I would kiss you and none would despise me. Verse two, we see incredible enjoyment. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. That's a sexual metaphor. She who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate, another metaphor. Verse three, there's both gentleness and intensity. Um, His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. You see that beautiful conjunction of gentleness and intensity. Verse five, we see longing and pleasure. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she bore you. She who bore you was in labor. And lastly, passion in verse seven, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We see this because this is built into us from creation. We were designed for a beautiful relationship. We see this with Adam and Eve, our our first parents. God created us male and female, and he created them to enjoy this beautiful union. And it says in verse 23 of Genesis 2, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God is bringing woman to man 
He is sitting there like spitting some game, throwing some poetry at her, standing there buck naked. And, and th- like this is a beautiful picture of the sexuality we see in the Bible. So do you still think that the Bible's vision of sex is prudish? No. It shows its beauty and its goodness. But sex is also a uniting act. It's, it's two becoming one. We see this in Genesis 2.24. It's the giving of oneself to another personally, intimately, physically, spiritually, fully. And herein lies the problem. That sex without boundaries hinders that ability to be truly vulnerable. Sex, as God designed it, requires vulnerability. And you can only be vulnerable if you know you're safe. You can only be vulnerable if you know that you're enough. You can only be vulnerable in this way if you know that you will not be rejected. And so without a particular type of commitment, that can't be guaranteed. Otherwise, it just leads to pain. That's why, secondly, sex is meant for complete commitment. Remember, Jesus is laying out here in the Sermon on the Mount this this ethic for this new community to live by as, as a kingdom people. He's saying that what I'm saying here is going to lead to life. It's going to lead to your flourishing. This is what I call good. And so what Jesus is saying by do not commit adultery is that sex is to be enjoyed in a completely committed relationship called marriage. And this type of relationship is a covenant. See, a covenant is different than a contract. A contract contract says you do your part and I'll do my part. It's conditional. But a covenant is not 50-50, it's 100-100. It means I'm going to do my part whether you do your part or not. And it's rooted in God's covenant with us. God said to the Old Testament people, I will be your God and you will be my people. Not I will be your God if you live up to this standard. No, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in marriage, it's the same way. I am fully committed to you, whether you're fully committed to me or not. There is not a condition. And so in verse 27, when Jesus addresses adultery, he is talking about sex without that covenant commitment. Adultery is addressed in the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. And what it's saying is that there is something so beautiful and something so sacred about marriage that it must be protected because of its preciousness and its value, that it requires tenderness, it requires care, that it requires longevity in the relationship. A covenant relationship is about giving, not receiving. So we, what we tend to do, and this isn't just about sexual relationships. We tend to treat relationships like this in general. We tend to think of them like a cell phone plan. We're like consumers. So you get a new cell phone and it's got all the bells and whistles and the face ID and you can like hail planes in. You can do all kinds of things with this new phone. It's got the fastest data plan. You get it at the best price and then you give it about six months. And what starts to happen? kind of get tired of it, right? It's dinged up. You drop it. The screen gets cracked. You know, a couple months later, you see the new models start to come out and you're like, ooh, I kind of need that phone. The promo expires and now you're paying more money for your data plan. And so what do you start doing? You start going on AT&T or Verizon and you start checking out those phone deals. Ooh, that's a buy one, get one free. I should, I should get in on that. And you just end up switching over to a new deal. 
Look, you don't, you don't even have to have a newish phone. You could have like a flip phone and you've been holding out as long as you possibly can, but you're kind of eyeing that iPhone 12. And that's how we treat relationships. Often we treat people in relationships as a means to an end. And if you're not meeting my needs, I will trade you in for something different. I wish you were more like this person. We start comparing and on the other end, maybe you're someone who's desirous of a relationship and what you feel like you have to do in this culture is you have to constantly market yourself. You feel like you constantly have to sell yourself. You feel like, well, if I can just lose some weight and I can just tuck this and lift that, if I can get bigger muscles, if I can be more interesting, if I can be desirable, then maybe someone would want a relationship with me. How exhausting is all of that? But a covenant is different because it provides security. It says, I am not leaving. I used to joke with, with my wife. Uh, my wife has a, a skin condition called vitiligo. And there were times where she felt like I would, it, it was, her skin, it was continuing to lose pigment. And she's like, I just wondered if, if you will, will always love me. And I said, babe, if you were bald headed and purple, I would love you. That, that's what a commitment looks like. It means if you become bald-headed and purple, I'm going to love you until the end, for better or for worse. It means I'm not looking for better. It means I'm not looking for different. I'm not looking for more. You are safe here. You can be fully vulnerable without shame because you're not gonna be rejected. You're not gonna be turned away. A covenant says you get all of me and I get all of you. And what happens within that covenant commitment is it creates the confines for us to see love flourish. Song of Solomon 8, 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, something steadfast, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And so what happens is that sex inside of marriage becomes covenant renewal. You have this covenant relationship and it becomes covenant renewal. In other words, it's not the entirety of the relationship. It's an outward sign of the love within. And so it becomes like a sacrament. One of the things I miss, look, I miss singing. I know we talked about that earlier, like you know, because of the church's desire for us not to sing, I miss that. But I also miss not taking communion. I really miss not taking, really miss taking communion because communion is a visible sign of an inward reality. It's a visible sign that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And so when we take communion, when we take the bread and we take the wine, what we're saying here is we're saying we're remembering what Jesus did. And in remembering what Jesus did, we remember the very real work and we remember I am forgiven. I remember. And so in the same way, sex becomes a vehicle for reminding us that we've given our entire life to a person in marriage. And this is why sex outside of marriage is so damaging. It's physical intimacy and oneness without saying you can have the rest of my life. You're only getting part of a person. It's more like, I like how I feel when I'm with you. That's every love song, right? I like how you make me feel. But what happens when the feeling fades? What happens when it dies? This is why Tim Keller says it makes sense then that sexual relations can be confined to marriage for acceptance and mutual disclosure are not the activities of a moment, but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving. 
Each time that sexual relations spring from casual encounters, something of their healing and life-giving nature is destroyed. But, but why not just live together? Like, why not just say, okay, we're just going to commit to live together. We're going to be long time together. Why can't you get the same? Because the biblical ethic is pretty clear. That the covenant of marriage has been between one man and one woman, and it's meant to be forever. It's meant to be for a lifetime. And this has been the universal ethic across religions, and it's been consistent with Christianity for, over, for 2,000 years. Because it's meant to be more than just my desires are for you. It means you get all of my life. You get my commitment. It's meant to mirror how God loves us. Jesus said, or sorry, Paul said that we should love, to men, love your wife like Christ loves the church. How? By giving everything. By giving up the possibility of other options. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself for us. He became a servant. He said, I'm yours even when you screw up. I'm yours and I died for you to make you mine. And what this does is it creates an opportunity for intimacy and vulnerability and joy. And because it mirrors the gospel, this is why in Matthew 19, Jesus is again asked about marriage and divorce. And after Jesus lays out this ethic, some said, it'd be better if we just didn't marry It'd be better if we just didn't get married. And he's right because we have such a high view and respect for sex and marriage. Okay, that's the foundation. I want to talk about some kingdom principles, how we can flourish sexually. The first is don't use people. This is a pretty good ethic for everything, but particularly sexually, don't use people. The teachers at this time were always trying to, to focus on outward uh, obedience to the rules. So they, so they went to really great lengths to kind of line out what was too far when it came to rules. And so in the ancient world, what often would happen is that adultery had been truncated down to a, mar- to a man sleeping with a married woman. It was kind of expected that a man would, would step out, that he would not be virtuous, he would not be committed to his wife but never the same for a woman. There was definitely a double standard here. And it was really only considered adultery because the ma- he was offending a married man and, and by sleeping with his wife. And so in verse 28, Jesus levels the playing field. He says, but I say to you that everyone, everyone, that's all of us, who looks at a woman with lust one ten, you can flip that, by the way. Jesus is kind of picking on the men, and we'll get to that in a minute. You can flip that and make that women who look at men with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Everyone. And we're not talking about sexual desire. Again, that's good. But lust is to linger. It's when our sexual desire becomes disordered or it's inappropriate out of the way that God designed us or or to look at someone and say, I want that in order to fulfill my desires is to look at another person and treat them as an object. And so what lust does is it uses other people. Lust is this general desire for my own fulfillment that we look for someone else to meet that desire. It's incredibly impersonal. Do you see how that differs from love? Love sets its desires on a single person and says, I am giving myself fully to you. Lust says you exist to meet my desires. 
See, lust is disordered. It means you exist for me. So what ends up happening is we treat other people or other things as a means to an end. And you might be saying, you know, I don't use people, but we all do. There are multiple ways that we can use people, particularly sexually. The easiest way to see this is pornography. Pornography is incredibly destructive. And it's not just destructive because it's sin on screen. We're watching two people com commit a sinful act. It's actually, cre studies have shown it creates crushing sexual expectations. It also creates a diminished ability to deal with the real difficulties of relationships because everything has been polished. Nothing's mutual. It's a using type relationship. And then lastly, it, increases, it creates increased expectations to conform, particularly for women, to the look of porn stars and to the activity of, of, of porn movies. That's a very easy way to see how you can use people, but you could actually use people in a consenting relationship. I want you, but not enough to commit my life to you. Do you see how that's transactional? I love you, but not enough to limit my options. It's consuming. See, why not commit? Because what it's saying is, is if you don't live up to this, up to some unforeseen standard, if you don't make me feel a certain way, I'm out. And studies have, have in fact showed that couples who live together before getting married, there's a higher divorce rate. You would think it would be the opposite, right? You need to live with someone and figure out if you'd like them enough to spend your life with them. But it, it showed that these studies showed that, that the expectations for a live-in relationship were actually less than those for a spouse. And one woman said, and this was devastating as I read this, she said, if I felt like I was on this multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. But we can also use people subtly. You can make someone a means to an end by having a vision for the type of life that you want, that if I can just find a good wife or I can just find a good husband, if I can find someone who will give me children, if I can have the perfect picture of what I want, I will be living the good life. That is still using someone as a means to an end. And this is why Jesus addresses divorce. Again, I want to give another disclaimer here. We've all been affected by divorce. Whether, whether that's our family, whether that's our parents, whether that's some of you personally. Again, I want you to hear this. There is so much grace in Jesus, so much grace to forgive every sin that you're not marked eternally because of this. Again, I'm not going to answer every question related to this. This is, a, again, this is good for that Q&A. But I want us to see how divorce in this culture was a way that people were using others. So if you look at verse 31, it says, it was also said, you know, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Um, the context here was that only men could divorce their wives. So in the ancient culture, a woman could not get out of a marriage on her own. A husband could. So what he would do is he would give her a certificate of divorce. And in giving her this certificate of divorce, it was a literal piece of paper. And there were different teachers, different schools, and they would differ on what was a valid reason to get a divorce. So you had some who would say, only through infidelity can someone get a divorce. You had other teachers who said, if your wife burns dinner, you can get a divorce. If you're walking down the street and you see another woman you find more attractive, you can send your wife packing. 
And this came out of Deuteronomy 24, where Moses granted a, a certificate of divorce to men, to their wives, because it said, uh, because of the hardness of their hearts, acknowledging their brokenness. And so the certificate became a release and was actually a way to protect women, because what husbands would often do is they would send their wives away prior to this and then invite them back when it was convenient, using them again. But it not only used women, but it also shamed them. Because in this certificate of divorce, when you were given this, this certificate, what it was also saying is, you're not good enough. You don't meet my standards, and I'm done with you. And verse 32 actually doubles this. If you look at it in, in context, notice it doesn't say the woman is guilty. It says that the husband who gave her this ground of divorce on something other than sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. In other words, what he's doing is multiplying her shame before other peoples and multiplying the shame of the man who married her. Do you see why Jesus values marriage so much? Because he wants us to live as a people who are fully loved and fully known who don't bear shame. And this is the heart of the gospel, that there is no standard for you to live up to. There, there is no bar of which you need to get over for Jesus to love you, but simply Jesus has loved you. And like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who'd been rejected five times by husbands and lovers, Jesus looked at her and said, I want you. I love you and I refuse to use you and I will change you and shape you and make you into who I want you to be. By the way, this is why women flocked to the early church. They flocked to the early church because their value was elevated. They weren't seen as objects. It's not man-centered or oppressive because safety creates room for us to flourish. So don't use people. But lastly, I want to, as we close, I want to look at Jesus' promises for our sexual desires. So, so what hope does Jesus give us for our desires. Verses 29 and 30, this doesn't sound very hopeful, but I promise it is. Jesus starts talking about cutting out eyes and cutting off hands. There's some figurative language here. This is not literal. Please don't go do this. It's not literal. Um, but what it means is that we need to take drastic measures to deal with our sin. The eye here, it means that we need to change what we're looking at. And if our eye is looking at something that we cannot seem to take our eyes off, that is causing us to continue to fall into sin, we need to remove that thing. Like Job said in Job 31, uh, I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a woman. Or our hands, what you do. Behavior modification can't change you, but there may be some practical measures that you need to put in place to flee temptation. See, God wants to heal us, and He heals us as we deny ourselves. Jesus is calling us in this passage to deny ourselves, saying, Jesus, you are better, so I will lay down whatever you say because I, you promise me that you're enough. So what that might mean practically is for some of us, it may mean you need to cut internet out of your house. It might mean that you don't need to be alone on your cell phone. It might mean that there might be a particular relationship that causes you to struggle that you need to distance yourself from. You need to put some boundaries in place. And I know this is hard, but it's better than losing your whole life. 
But related to this, why is Jesus saying that that would be good news? This is supposed to be good, right? What it means is that you don't need sexual fulfillment to be fully human. You don't need sex to thrive as a person. It means that if you're single and you desire to be married, that's a, that is a good desire, but it doesn't mean that's what it takes to be fully human. It doesn't mean that you finally arrive, if so. It means if you're in a struggling marriage, the solution is not a different person. It means that you are not your desires. It's not wrong to want to be married. If you're struggling in your marriage, it's not wrong to want to see reconciliation happen, but it doesn't have to consume you because it's not ultimate. Because our desires point to something else. So sex is, is like a signpost. A signpost is not the end of a destination, right? So if you're, if you're driving down the interstate and you see Woburn 11 miles, you don't pull over and stop under that sign thinking you've arrived in Woburn, right? I don't know why you'd want to go to Woburn, but who knows? Maybe you do. Sex is a lot like that. It's a signpost pointing to somewhere else. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do I want when I want sex or a relationship. It's to be loved and known. Augustine, the great fourth century African bishop, he had tried everything under the sun and he talked about sexual desire a lot. And in longing, he said, the single desire that dominated my search for delight was simply to, be, to love and to be loved. Jesus is inviting you to be fully loved, to fully love him to be fully known, to know that you're safe, to know that you're secure, to know that you're wanted, to know that Jesus delights in you, to know that there's forgiveness, whether it's adultery or persistent lust or divorce. There is so much grace in Jesus that he calls you and he wants you and he says that you're his. And here's what happens when we know that we're fully loved by Jesus. This love frees you. It frees you to not idolize marriage nor to fear marriage. It means that if you're single, you can be single because Jesus is enough. Because Sam Alberry says that marriage may show the beauty of the gospel, but singleness shows its sufficiency. That as you wait, Jesus is enough. And if he does provide that, then to, to him be the glory. But if he doesn't, he is enough. It means you can deny your inner desires when they conflict with God's design. Because Jesus promises he's enough for you. So what would, what would it be like for us to be a church where people could flourish relationally and sexually? Where people aren't used, but people are valued, where people feel safe. There are three ways as, as, we, as we wrap up. First of all, we would be a safe place for the broken and vulnerable. We would be a safe place for those who've endured shame, who've endured abuse, who've been hurt, who have had broken relationships or broken marriages, who, who long. People would find grace and mercy. It would be loved and served. It means that you don't have to face temptation alone. Look, if you're struggling with something that I talked about this morning, I, I challenge you, talk to somebody in your community group. Find someone to talk about your struggles with it is so freeing when we can walk through that with somebody, somebody who's a safe place. And then lastly, we can be a family. The church can be, can be a particularly lonely place for single people. Oftentimes churches, we, we, we are guilty of gearing 
everything we do towards couples, towards children. We love couples and children, but we can sometimes forget what it's like to be single, what it's like to, to long for family. We have something unique that we can prov provide, as what one person said, an abundance of spiritual family. Be a family where people have, they have key access, where they can walk into your house because they feel like they're such a part of your family. The question this morning is, are you a part of Jesus's family? Have you trusted him and believed that he's enough? Let's pray.